0: We're in the final few days of campaigning before the voice referendum. Can last minute advertising really sway votes? Also, today, the chair and three directors to go in a major board shake up at Qantas, Oztam appoints a new CEO, and what two of Australia's best journalists have in common. Welcome to the Umbrella Cast, a discussion of everything under Australia's media and marketing umbrella. I'm Michael Thompson, and I'm joined today by first Adam Lang. Hello, Adam. Hello, Michael. And Sean Aylmer too. Sean, good afternoon. Oh, good afternoon, Michael and Adam. The main story today, I think, is, I mean, just purely because of the timing of this. We are just a few days out now from the referendum on an Indigenous voice to Parliament. Saturday is, of course, the day. And the polls are all indicating and have been indicating for a while that the no vote will most likely win. But we're now seeing a real flurry of advertising activity from the Yes campaign. Now, Clemenger BBDO, on behalf of Yes 23, has released the latest iteration of its Yes Makes It Possible campaign. So, And that's now come out just four days out, right? And you can see it on the Mumbrella website. And uh, Lauren McNamara has written about this for Umbrella. Now, I- importantly, while looking from the outside, you might say that this actually looks quite last minute because it's it's not long, obviously, until we go to vote. But it was planned that way. And Clemenger actually told Lauren that this campaign launch was always planned as part of the overarching strategy. Now, last week, the agency did launch another campaign that, that took a slightly different approach, highlighting the difference in life outcomes for Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians. So there's been a lot of activity in the final week and a half. And Just one more point, really, I suppose, to add a little bit of context to this. Yesterday, Mumbrella had some exclusive polling data from Strategic Insights Business Pollinate, and that showed that 18% of Aussies are still undecided, while 35% plan to vote yes and 47% intend to vote no. Interestingly, I suppose the sentiment of the undecided voters might be A little bit encouraging for the yes campaign because 89% of those who say they are undecided agree with the statement that I hope the voice will make things better for Australia and 88% agree that I hope the voice will make things better for First Nations people. More than 2 million people have already voted what do you both think? I mean, clearly we're we're talking here about that 18% of Australians who say that they are still undecided. Do these kind of last minute
1: targeted campaigns have what it takes to, to sway votes, do you think? I think the yes side is pushing it uphill. Um, I think we need to remember that a referendum passes if you get, it's what they call the double majority. So the majority of Australians need to vote yes, it's 50%, simple and the majority of states, so that's four of the six states, need to vote yes. Queensland and Western Australia will vote no. It's very, very difficult based on the polling we've seen to think that they will vote yes. Therefore, you end up with Tasmania, Victoria, New South Wales and South Australia all got to vote a majority yes. With that as context, given the polling And what you just said then, Michael, means 16% of that 18%, so uh, whatever percentage that is, 90% of the the uncertainties need to vote yes. And no value judgment here. We're neither here for or against in this conversation at least. Obviously, personally, we are one way or another. They're not going to get 90% of the undecideds to vote that way, no matter how good the campaign is, particularly when at least 2.2 million people have already voted. That was Monday's figure. The Australian Electoral Commission came out with that number. So I don't think there's any chance. What do you think, Adam?
2: Sean, I think that's right. The only optimistic note I would add- You
1: are an optimist, Adam. You are an (laughs) optimist, a spreadsheet optimist.
2: Well, and this, yeah, this is really, there's optimism in the data because like, almost like audience ratings, it's a representative sample. That's what polling is. And so- it is possible that the polling and the margin of error is wrong. I don't think it's going to be wrong enough to change the the position you've just stated, Sean. I, I don't. But it is possible that the people who are thinking one way might change their mind. It's people that are undecided will still be undecided. So how this plays out is going to be so interesting. I think it's going to go the way of most referendums in the country. And so you know, then what happens? We find out Saturday people vote, then we move on, we get the result. But where to from there? You know, and, and that's really interesting to me. I wonder about
1: the advertising spend from the Yes campaign. Has it been effective? Is Are advertisements, given that this is a politically charged atmosphere, do they actually make much of a difference, I wonder?
0: I think on the, on the spend side of it, it's actually interesting seeing then what a low a budget piece is capable of doing, and there was, there was an example of this. It was Briggs, aka Adam Briggs okay, Senator Briggs, Australian rapper, goes by a number of different names, clearly uh, appeared in a, a campaign a week ago, very different style. Now, he's been very uh, outspoken during the the, the campaign, but he, he featured and he actually kind of generated and kind of came up with this and worked on this campaign uh, himself. Very different style. It is just him talking to two young women. Seems quite low budget, very simple, about how it's not hard just to Google the voice and find out what it means. And interestingly, according to The Guardian, this is a three-minute clip, and it's already been viewed something like five million times already. It's gone viral, and it's shot in a pub. Like it, it doesn't get much more simple. I mean, it helps as well that I think Nash Edgerton shot it uh, as, a, as the director. So it kind of had a, a fairly kind of big name director to, uh, to help with this. But it just probably shows that campaigns don't need to necessarily be flashy to be quite effective in terms of reach, kind of hitting 5 million people. And so arguably the cost would be quite conservative there.
2: So two things from my point of view. One is I do think advertising works. I've really enjoyed seeing the ads.
1: In this campaign, so I, I agree advertising works, but I'm talking about a politically charged campaign. Yeah. Advertising, does. is it as effective as selling a fast-moving consumer good or selling a car?
2: Well, I think it is in the sense that it seeks to inform, and I think most of the ads we've seen, do that, and I would say that Briggs, who I think is a great rapper, um, Bad Apples, if you haven't heard the tune, is, is worth a listen, is... <laughs> so very Adam, so very Adam. <laughs> well, he's really good, and he's expert, obviously, songwriting, if you look at it, and particularly rapping, is storytelling, and he's encapsulated in this three and a half minute video, it is superbly shot, scripted, everything about it, I think is brilliant, you know, and I think it does get the message across. So I think it has an effect. I stand by the previous comments, so I don't think it's going to have enough of effect to affect an outcome of yes on Saturday.
0: There was another uh, interesting opinion piece on Mumbrella yesterday about why the yes campaign, in, in the words of the editorial, is failing, uh, that it is, number one, failing to make the case for change. Number two, it is preaching to the converted and, and number three, leading with the wrong type of emotion and referencing then the uh, John Farnham, You're the Voice campaign that we saw come out uh, a few weeks ago, which feels like a very long time ago now uh, in the campaign, and that that actually had a negative effect on voters. It did not have the desired effect at all. In fact, it, it kind of went the other way because what it supposedly did was emphasised to potentially undecided voters just how significant the decision was. That this was a a major, major change and a very momentous moment in Australian history. And in doing so, might have actually made people more nervous about making a change. And in doing so, led with the wrong type of emotion. I thought that was an
1: interesting perspective. I I actually thought it was a bit preachy that I remember during the referendum for the Republic, and John Howard was Prime Minister at the time, he didn't support it. But he came out and he said, personally, I don't support it, but you do what you want. And the genius in that was that people looked at the Prime Minister. He wasn't preaching to me. He wasn't telling me to vote no to the Republic. But hey, the Prime Minister's voting no. Hmm, Maybe I should vote no. What this campaign, the idea of coming out and saying, you must vote yes, And I think the current Prime Minister has fallen into this trap a little bit. I think some of the yes campaigning has been a bit preachy, and I think the voice is an example of that. That's why some of the social media stuff has probably been more effective from my point of view.
2: I agree with that. And I think that the status of these sorts of changes is that it is always difficult to encourage change. So that that is a challenge to begin with. It's easier to resist rather than to change. And I think you've got to do a lot of convincing to get people to be compelled to want to change. And so I, I think that was always going to be difficult. I have to say within that, though, I have to observe that the no campaign has been very effective at saying why they disagree with it. And the yes campaign has not been, in my view, as effective at saying why we should change. And so I think there'll be some picking over the nature of the, the strategy of their campaign and the execution after this event, and that, that'll be really rich territory for us to look at, you know, for experts in the in the field that we're talking about of media and marketing, how this could have gone differently, because the question doesn't go away, even if the referendum doesn't answer it in the yes camp.
0: Can I just ask you one last question, and then we'll, we'll move on to another topic. But we, we've seen kind of two very effective campaigns or, or quite effective campaigns roll out kind of very close to the end. And it is worth having a look at on the Mumbrella website at the the campaign that launched today, but but really then the Briggs piece that we talked about that has already been seen 5 million times. Do you think that that now that we're kind of seeing some of these more effective ones, maybe perhaps moving away from the the, as you said, Sean, perhaps a little bit more preachy kind of campaigned earlier in the piece, that if the referendum wasn't this Saturday and was in, say, two weeks or a month's time, that that it would be a slightly different story? Is this too late to have an effect now?
1: I think timing, people have only focused on the referendum seriously probably in the last couple of weeks, and they would only ever focused on the referendum in the last couple of weeks. My kids are asking me about it now with a few days to go, but they haven't thought much about it until now. So I don't know that the timing would have made that much Difference, Michael. Is that like a block? You know, in theatre sports, when someone asks a question, no matter whether you agree or disagree, you're supposed to go with it. I think I've just done the yeah. opposite, Michael. So I apologize for that. That is, <laughs> that is a, <laughs> an official block. <laughs>
2: that, that is
0: quite all right. And uh, Adam, are you? Uh, you're, you're the recipient of the block here. You've got nothing to <laughs> nothing to work with.
2: No, I, never too late. Never too
0: late. Oh, mm, there you go. Oh, excellent. See, again, Adam, the eternal optimist. <laughs> yes. Seems a good point to finish this bit up on. We'll come back in a moment and get into a few of the other stories that are on Mumbrella this week. Now we're each picking out a story that Mumbrella has covered this week and bringing it to the studio for discussion. And because it is, it's a bit of a race really, to to see who goes first, (laughs) to see who gets to pick the best story. And I've I've opted to go first this week so that I get uh, what I think is the best story uh, here and that is uh, the breaking news today about Qantas and Nathan Jolly was writing about this one on my umbrella at uh, chairman Richard Goyder and three directors are all going and in, in part of a, a major board shakeup. so we've got one director retiring next month two retiring in February and then uh, Richard Goyder will retire prior to the AGM late next year so not for a little while yet now just a little bit of a recap because it's impossible to talk about this without just just setting the scene a little bit of just how much of a PR disaster Qantas has been going through over the last, And I was looking at it, I'm like, it really is only about six weeks that all this has been unfolding because, look, Just prior to that, we were talking about, oh, $2.5 billion profit. But then straight after that, you had the CEO, then CEO, Alan Joyce, appearing at the, the Cost of Living Senate hearing. And it just all kind of unraveling from there because you had the ongoing saga over COVID credits for flights. Then the ACCC taking legal action over allegedly selling tickets for for cancelled flights and questions over Qantas's influence on uh, the government's decision to block Qatar Airways' additional flights. The High Court upholding that the airline had illegally sacked 1,700 ground handlers uh, during the pandemic. The list really does go on and on. And uh, you had then CEO Alan Joyce retiring early and Vanessa Hudson moving into the role. Adam, I know that you have been talking about, and we've talked about Qantas a few times now on the Mumbrella cast. Mm. So I'm asking you a question to which I already know the answer. Was the board shakeup inevitable? Yes. And it's not over in my view. Ooh. Let's go to kind of board uh, accountability here. Why was this inevitable?
2: Okay. So the board's role is oversight and For all the reasons you just listed, I do not think the board can be said to have done its job. And I don't believe it can be said it's done its job well. And in that case, you have long-term servants in roles on boards, on this board, the Qantas board, that were there providing oversight while all of this happened. And I think that accountability has to be present. And so it isn't. Uh, I think, too, that Richard Goiter announcing that he'd step down at the end of next year, gee, that's a long way away feels like accountability has come too late at that point. So I just don't think that this is the end of it. Um, between now and the AGM, and we said this on the M Umbrella cast last time we spoke about it, I think we have to watch this space right up until the AGM because I don't think uh, it's finished yet. Uh, Sean, so why would it? Uh, again, sorry, I just, whenever I have this opportunity to pepper
0: kind of questions at the two of you, because obviously, Sean, you're a very experienced business journalist and Adam, you have kind of run an ASX listed company. So I've kind of like, oh, got a good opportunity here to expand my own knowledge. Uh, like why would, why would Richard going to be looking at a 12 month kind of period for this? Is that unusual that we'd be flagging it so far out if it's designed
1: to kind of help give the the, the brand a fresh start? This is the resignation you have when you're not having a resignation. The Clayton <laughs> resignation. Richard Goiter is royalty in corporate Australia, right? He ran West Farmers for many years. He's the chair of Woodside Energy, one of the biggest company, a top ten company. He is the chair, I think, of the AFL Commission. He is. Commission. I mean, you don't get more blue blood than the chair of the AFL Commission. Uh, a West Australian, very, very much part of the establishment. He came out and said, so next year I will step down. Now, <laughs> next year, if you really want to, I mean, and he took responsibility for it, so credit where credit's due, that's fine. But if he's serious about it, why isn't he going in the next couple of months? I mean, personally, I actually don't think he should go. So I'm not I'm not actually arguing he should go. But on mm-hmm. this thing that people are saying, well, Goida is taking responsibility for it, I'm not so sure whether he is or not. I mean, he's not going for another 12 months. Now, the reason I don't think he should go is I think when you get a new CEO, you want a chair who's experienced and know what they're doing. And so to get a new chair and a new CEO within a couple of months, I do not think that's a good idea. I don't think that's a good idea for Qantas. I also think Goida and Alan Joyce, okay, incoming, Alan Joyce did a spectacular job for shareholders during the pandemic. They stuffed up the last six months more in a PR sense. But for shareholders, they did a great job and they got a lot of money out of government. You complain about that, but the government gave it to them. So, you know, let's not be too harsh on them. Okay, they got greedy in the last few months. What am I going to do with all this? I, I don't think Goida should go, but... I accept that he's decided to go. He says, I'm taking responsibility for it, but he's not really because he's not going for 12 months. The, the 12 months then, would that part of that be designed to to help with that transition to the new CEO? Yeah, presumably. It gives certainty and all that. Um, it, big investors would not be happy if uh, the new CEO, Vanessa Hudson, stepped in and there was a new chair. Yeah. And so I think they're probably protecting that. So that is probably part of it. And Richard Goyder would be a very proud person. I'm sure he'd be hurt by all the criticism, but it's still hmm. a bit of a client's resignation.
0: Okay, uh, then does it give Qantas then the fresh start that it it needs, uh, or have we already kind of had enough of a fresh start just by changing to
1: the new CEO? Well, you know when uh, Commonwealth Bank was in all sorts of trouble and Ian Rev was the CEO, and yeah. they said we're getting rid of Ian Rev, we're going to have a fresh start. With Matt Common, who of course was a direct report to Ian Revs. Yet somehow Commonwealth Bank has emerged from that as this different, better organisation in the public's perception. So I think when you have the former CFO taking over as CEO, it is quite possible that they can reinvent themselves as a much better organisation. Hudson herself is trying hard. I mean, she's isn't she Flying Economy? Isn't that what I read mm-hmm. at some she point? She did once. Yeah, did once.
2: A lot of photographers around for that one. Yeah.
1: It, it, the perception is important, and particularly with something that we all feel we own, like Qantas. So I think it probably is enough to reinvent themselves. Also, when air prices come down and people start flying again and all those post-COVID problems get sorted out, we're all going to love Qantas again, Michael. Let's face it. Well,
0: I, I was actually going to ask you about this, both of you really, because whether it is time for like a, a fresh take on on marketing and advertising for Qantas or whether it is just a case of improving the experience and, and lower airfares, flights running on time, Bag's not being lost. Just kind of mastering those things, and if you can kind of get those right, then the experience will change. And does that become more important than the marketing of the the
2: new Qantas? Yeah, Mike. I think it's a critical point. What we're talking about here is really an investor conversation, board governance, and so on. But it does flow through to brand and right down to the the nexus between you know the customer and why they buy a ticket and fly on Qantas. So. I think it does have an impact from a board branding level all the way through that business to business element, how we feel about Qantas. But when it comes down to the most critical things that you want as a customer, of course, it is, can I book a flight easily? Is it at a good price? Will it take off on time? And will that staff that are on it get me there safely and at least as good condition as I as I left?
1: Which is a bit tough after a 16-hour flight, but anyway, I'd like to see that, Adam. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, that's very true. But the flight itself, you know, how the stewards and pilots engage with every single passenger is important. And so how they feel about their workplace is really important and how that comes through at a customer service level. It's critical. So yeah, you've got to get the pricing right and the, the options to book and arriving safely and in great condition. But also how you're made to feel on that flight is important. I think that will have to come through in the branding. You know, I just don't think the um, the beautiful ads of the choir singing I Still Call Australia Home, they won't do it alone. Fifteen years ago,
1: put a bunch of kids on Uluru, get them to sing I Still Call Australia Home. We all felt good about Qantas. Different world now, different world.
2: <laughs> We're so demanding. <laughs> we, we
0: certainly are, aren't we? I have dominated enough with my story. And I've left you both with about three minutes each, which actually kind of feels about right. Um, (laughs) Adam, what would you like to nominate?
2: All right. Okay. So I'm going to go with one of my strong suits here in audience measurement. So OzTam has appointed a new CEO, the story by Nathan Jolly uh, on Mumbrella today. So OzTam is the organization responsible for measuring uh, television viewing data and marketing it and that of course includes broadcast tv what we think of traditionally and then online delivered broadcaster content bvod uh, all screen total tv so it's not an easy thing to do to measure all those different outputs Doug Piper used to be head of that entity and I used to work with Doug at Network 10, he is a very, very capable person and executive. He was terrific to work with. You know, the job of everyone, audience measurement in television, like radio, like news, et cetera, is find the win. And he was very good at doing that. And he was a really good colleague. I think he he did a good job in difficult circumstances. So Karen Halligan comes in. She has got great credentials. I don't know, Karen, but, you know, you can look at her achievements uh, that she has been able to deliver through decades. She's got great experience. So I wish her very well for the role and she seems well positioned. Sean, i got a question for you. You've mm-hmm. done this sort of thing before, mm-hmm. audience measurement, news mastheads, mm-hmm. pa- newspapers, online mastheads and so on. Stakeholder management is oh, one of the most yeah. difficult Things Now, think of this. Not only is Karen Helligan going to go in and run this entity, new to the role, she's got to manage seven networks, James Warburton, nine networks, Mike Sneesby, and network tens, Beverly McGarvey. She looks after content, obviously, and Jared Villani, he looks after commercial and operations. So you've got these three big entities. They're your stakeholders. But really, they often feud, and what they want is different. And so you're right in the middle of that.
1: Imagine that first meeting. Hello, my name's Karen. Where are you from? Nine. What about you? Ten and you? Seven. Hmm. What have I got myself into? Are we
2: all agreed? That's no, we're right.
1: not. Okay. <laughs> Let's take a vote on that. Hold on. It's yeah. binary. How can we have four different opinions when it's a yes, no vote? <laughs> so what a job, right? What a job. Good luck to us.
2: And, look, I think it's it's great for media, right, to have uh, the audience measurement system. VOS, you know, is is the relatively new system of measuring all of the television audiences across the country. Uh, it, it's a really important tool for media and, and marketers to be able to know the audience they reach, where they reach them and how they reach them. Michael, you've had plenty of involvement in audience measurement, you know, mm. including with radio and and digital audio. What do you see uh, as Karen's priorities when she gets into Austam?
0: Well, I'm seeing two things, first of all. Uh, Number one is the fact that 11th of October is the day that I just heard Adam Lang use an acronym, VOS, without flinching.
2: (laughs) That's its name. Yeah, Yeah,
0: but it's, I mean, it's Virtual Australia, right?
1: (laughs) VOS. Did you you hear him earlier on, though, talk (laughs) about uh, BVOD? VOD? Yes. But he actually he said online delivered broadcaster content, BVOD. But yes. online delivered broadcaster content, BVOD isn't the acronym for online delivered broadcast <laughs> no, content. No, usually I'm the pedant. You've taught us well. You've taught us well. <laughs> Sorry. Anyway, go on, Michael. He's done it uh, twice uh, so far. It's good. Uh,
0: it's it's actually quite satisfying watching this happen, isn't
1: it? It's just, He's squirming <laughs> it's, over there. He's is squirming. Yes,
0: it's it's actually quite, quite funny. But really, I mean, the, the, the thing is, Consistency of delivery and and providing the, this data is just so so vital because everybody watches it and it is so important. You said this yourself, Adam, that this is just absolutely vital as a tool for marketers. It's a tool kind of used widely within within these companies. And watching ratings is almost like a national sport yeah. in Australia. <laughs> have you yeah. have you noticed just the obsession with um say after the afl grand final or the nrl grand final or after the melbourne cup or after kind of uh the the block finale or the voice finale or any kind of one of those the obsession
1: with the tv ratings the next the next day is just quite extraordinary michael remember james warburton head of seven this week told nathan jolly that seven had won the year's ratings eight weeks out (laughs) like (laughs) it's the third quarter
2: He's yeah. calling a win. Yeah,
1: <laughs> probably he might be right though. Anyway, no, I, suspect, I suspect he
0: might. But isn't it isn't it fantastic the way you can cut? And Adam, you would have have experienced this. Just that, that if you look deep enough into any ratings, any audience measurement, you can find plenty of wins for anybody as soon as you get <laughs> oh, as soon as yeah. you dive into the demographics.
2: You can, and I think. Look, I know we have to be quick, Michael. But you know, aside from you know getting into a new role, Karen Halligan enters into Austam, getting the stakeholders aligned. It's a really critical role to have a cohesive voice to industry and I think that'll be a, a fascinating thing to see how she develops that. The audience measurement with Vos and how that develops, but also we know from earlier stories on Umbrella that there is a booking tool, a booking platform for advertisers to be able to see the audiences on Voz and buy against them. And that is work in progress towards next year. And I think not only sort of measuring the audience but turning that into an easy booking platform Mm. will be a critical thing for that uh, role to deliver. Adam, do you have a favourite
1: advertising acronym (laughs) <laughs> See, Michael, we lost you about four minutes ago when we started talking acronyms. Now, if I yes. asked you what did Adam just say, you'd probably go Voz or bevoz I
0: I did. I did hear one Voz in there. I was um, counting, and I was hoping we'd maybe get another B Yeah, we're going to something. ignore that
1: question. Can I just make one quick comment? On one thing that Karen Halligan has got going for her, she's working with a bunch of people who are under duress. They, their sector, is in a m- more difficult competitive position than it has ever been in. So, so true. there is so many more reasons for 9, seven, ten to work together than there ever has been. So hopefully she can take advantage of that.
2: Never lose the opportunity in the crisis. That's right. Oh, That's yes. right.
0: Inspiring us all, Adam Lang. Churchillian. Uh, now, of course, Adam, uh, you have uh, stolen time from Sean <laughs> to do that leaving Sean with 14 seconds for his story. (laughs) Sorry. We will extend it by another minute or
1: two, Sean.
0: uh, Take it away. What's your story today?
1: Well, this week we've written at Mumbrella a couple of stories. Joe Aston, the rear window columnist at the Financial Review, announced that he would be uh, leaving the masthead last friday so i just wrote a quick story on what it was like to manage joe Aston. i was his boss of sorts i don't think anyone's ever been joe's boss to be perfectly honest but i was in name i was his boss uh for uh, a couple of years there uh and he is incredibly high profile he Is incredibly capable. He can be incredibly difficult to work with. That's one story. The other one was Nick McKenzie. I I chatted to Nick McKenzie, who I think is right now the best investigative reporter in the country. He's the guy with Chris Masters who did the Ben Robert Smith stuff back in 2017. That started. We've heard the defamation case this year, obviously. He infiltrated neo Nazis. He uncovered a fraud at the central bank, the Reserve Bank, or a subsidiary of the Reserve Bank. He's done incredible work and I spoke to him about what drives him but also whether he gets scared and I I said are you ever fearful and like within a split second he said yeah absolutely he said there's the defamation stuff but what about me what about my family I fear for that and he said when you push neo-nazis you're going to get neo-nazis pushing you back when you push what's really happened in a war and what a war I suppose a war hero did you're going to get pushback from supporters of that war hero. Really fascinating to talk to Nick about it. Funnily enough, I was just talking to him, he was in the car at the time, he was taking his kids to uh, some function when I was talking to him. And, you know, it really brought home to me this guy who uncovers some of the greatest injustices in our community, he was just taking his kids to the park. You know, while he was talking to me, and it was kind of the, the the subject matter and what he was doing, there was such an interesting kind of juxtaposition there.
0: Sean, I mentioned at the top of the show that we'd be looking at kind of what two of Australia's best journalists have in common. Mm. What do you think it is? Is it is it would it would it be courage, kind of thing? Fearless,
1: slightly different. Fearless, yeah. So both of them are totally fearless. Joe Aston. Totally fearless. Joe Aston brought people to account. I mean, Alan Joyce is an example. Alex Malley from the CPA Australia. He brought people to account in the business world like no one else. Nick is exactly the same. Totally fearless. Work incredibly hard. So they are always on. I don't know how people live with them because they are always on. And they are are both smart. You know, you, you can't... I've worked with a lot of journalists and those two are two of the smartest journalists I've ever worked with. And I think that's kind of what they've got in common, what makes them stand out.
2: Sean, you might not take this for granted, but you certainly would have a different appreciation than me. You are a journalist. I'd say your calibre as a journalist is equal to theirs.
1: I have... <laughs> oh, Adam, that is is that that is that is very generous, but I'm nowhere near their league. No, I mean that. That's not okay. false modesty. I. I they are above and beyond
2: well I think that is that is very you to be that self-effacing but as a consumer of writing that that is my view and I always look forward to Joe Aston's columns <laughs> there's this <a> sense of <laughs> you know anxiety when you go what's he gonna say now <laughs> yeah. with um, Nick Mackenzie the same because he probably wasn't as provocative or isn't as provocative but is the depth of coverage and thought oh. Now, all three of you, just the way you write, the smithing that you can do that I can't is something that I hold very dear. But I'm going to miss reading Joe's work. I really am. And I'm going to continue to to look for the next one. Who might it be?
1: Yeah. There's lots of great journalists out there. Um, Mm. I think Joe, though, in my view, some people hated him. He wasn't always right, right? He did stuff wrong without a doubt. Mm. But as a business columnist, I don't think there's ever been a better business columnist than Joe Aston, or at least a... As, as compelling a business journalist as Joe Aston. Hmm.
0: Seems like a pretty good place to wrap things up. I think that's actually, uh, everyone had extra time today. So yeah. it was very kind of fair, it's very magnanimous. Especially you. Oh, I mean that. Not that I'm holding on to that. <laughs> Mickey
1: T, it's okay with me. It's all right. <laughs> well, thank you, Sean. <laughs> thank you, Michael. Thank you, Adam. Thank you, Michael.
0: Slightly, slightly kind of ending on a slightly snarky note now, aren't we? Uh, this is the <laughs> Umbrella Cast. Remember to hit follow on the podcast. Do you want to thank yourself, Michael?
1: In fact, I'd like to thank Michael.
0: Oh, there we go. Finally, someone does it. Like, Michael,
1: thanks for your contribution.
0: You know what? You're both welcome. <laughs> You've been awesome. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, Head along to mumbrella.com.au for more info on everything that we've talked about. And and definitely check out those two pieces by Sean on there about what it's like to manage Joe Aston and also the interview with Nick McKenzie. They are both cracking reads. Leave a review for the podcast as well. That's always very much appreciated. Thank you very much for your company. See you next time.